The Gospel this morning is from Luke, the first chapter, verses 26 through 38. How I do love this thing. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, to be born will be called holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of our Lord. Good morning. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you this morning, hearts that would seek after you and a faith that would rest in you. Do that for us through our worship, through your word, and by your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this is the last series, or the last sermon in the series of Longing for a Snake Crusher, our Advent series. And we started actually earlier than Advent actually officially began. And I remember how we started. The first sermon quoted out of the book of The Hobbit, Tolkien's book. And so I thought it'd be appropriate to kind of have some of that in, this, in today's sermon as well, more so toward the end. But if you're familiar with that story, which many of you are, I know, what we see at the very beginning of that story is how the wizard Gandalf chooses a very unlikely hobbit named Bilbo Baggins to lead a group of unruly dwarfs 
on a great adventure to kill the dragon, destroy the goblins, risk their lives over and over, reclaim the treasure, and bring peace finally to the land. Now, as a Christian, Tolkien was well aware of how God worked throughout his story of redemption. And you can see themes of the gospel all throughout his works. Themes like choosing the unlikely to carry out the extraordinary. As we look back on God's story throughout this Advent season, we see him calling the most unlikely people, don't we? At the most unlikely times in their lives to carry out extraordinary adventures, to carry out his extraordinary plan for the fulfillment of his extraordinary promise. We saw people like Abraham being called, and Sarah, to what? Start a new nation. To start a new nation, yes, which would require having a child in their 90s. Very unlikely time for them to be called, right? We see Gideon, we see Moses, we see all of these who felt insignificant and ill-equipped to carry out the work that God was calling them to do, but, complete, but all that while, God is calling them to listen, to obey, that he would equip them to do that. King David was the least of his brothers. We had a sermon on him a few weeks ago. The least of his brothers. In fact, when Samuel was told to go anoint a king, Jesse, David's father, didn't even bring David into the picture because he felt him too insignificant to be king. And God said to Samuel, get David. That's the guy. Anoint him. God was interrupting all of their daily lives, all their normal routines, but conforming these seemingly insignificant, ill-equipped men and women to do and to conform to his plan and his promise. Now, last week, we saw how God used Daniel to reveal the timing of the coming of the anointed one, the, the snake crusher, the Messiah. Although some religious groups at the time seemed to have gotten the timing of the Messiah correct, remember, Daniel chapter 9 was a prediction of when the Messiah would come. And some religious groups had that down to where they knew when to start looking for the Messiah. The only thing was, they were looking for the likely candidates. They were looking for the ones that we would expect to be the Messiah, the strong leaders, the military leaders, the ones who could lead armies to conquer the oppressor and bring peace to the land. And that brings us to today's passage. What Christians throughout history have come to call the Annunciation. The announcement that he is coming, that he is here. How did God bring about this announcement of the coming of the Messiah? Well, he chose an unlikely person, didn't he? He chose an unlikely person, not only that, but from an unlikely place and an unlikely time in her life. He was calling an unlikely person by calling this young woman not a woman of great power. Mary was not a woman of great power or of great wealth or of great influence. In fact, she was just barely a woman. I mean, she was probably, some estimates, 12 or 13 years old, maybe at the oldest 16. And not only was she an unlikely person, but she was from an unlikely place. God called Mary, who was in Nazareth, Nazareth. Do you know Nazareth? You know that famous town, Nazareth. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Not one time is Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament. It was an insignificant town. 
And you want to know how insignificant it was or what people thought about it? Look in John chapter 1 when, when they're, they're, the disciples are coming to Nathanael and say, hey, we found the Messiah. He's, he's from, from Nazareth. And, and what's Nathanael say? Nazareth? What? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Come on. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Those were his words. John 1, 46. And then this unlikely time. You know, we, we want God to meet us in our timing. We want God to send us when we are ready. When we have nothing better going on, perhaps. But Mary was betrothed. She was engaged to be married. She was committed to Joseph. Now, yes, their engagement and our engagement are a little different. But theirs was even more committed. It was more of a, it was more formal. They were committed to starting a family, to being married, to being committed to each other. Mary was thinking about starting a family, about being with her husband, perhaps. Whatever women did when they were getting ready to be married, she was taking part in that phase of her life. And then, Gabriel. Gabriel comes, she's confronted with this troubling interruption. By the way, the title of this sermon should be troubling, God's Troubling Interruptions. Just want to clarify that. But God says this, or Gabriel does this when he comes. In verse 28, he says, He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, afraid at, saying, afraid at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, you can understand that, couldn't you? You know, you're out just doing your thing. It doesn't really even say what she was doing. But then this angel appears and says, greetings, favorite, favored one. Of course, you'd be a little bit troubled. And wondering, why am I being visited by one of God's representatives right now? And he greets her with this, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. What can be going on here? And the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. God has his hand on you and he's chosen you. And behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay. Now I'm a little confused, she's probably thinking. Think about this. So God chose Mary. Mary, this representative of insignificance in her culture. And he chose her for what? And this is what the angel says. You'll give birth and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of David his father and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So you see what, she's doing, what he's doing here? He's choosing the most insignificant in order to carry the most glorious, the most humble servant to carry, to raise, to mother the most glorious. That was in our call to worship. She was called to carry the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe, the one who created the universe. She was called, this insignificant Mary was called to carry the creator of the universe to give birth to him and to be his mother. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There's going to be no end. This is the long promised 
the long-awaited snake crusher that we have been waiting for all throughout Advent, the one who will put an end to all of our sin, the one that most of all will crush the head of the serpent, the one, the enemy, the one who, is, who, would, who would deceive us, the one who seeks anyone he can devour, as Peter says, the one who intimidates, the one who seeks to destroy, the one who seeks to divide God's people, the one who seeks to break up families, to lead us into more and more sin, whatever can bring us down, the one who is the author of all evil. The snake crusher has finally come, and that is what Gabriel is saying to Mary. And Mary, you're the one who's going to carry him. You're going to give birth to him, and you're going to be his mother. At that moment, God called this seemingly insignificant servant of his to carry out the fulfillment of his promise. I wonder what she was doing that day. I wonder where she was going. I wonder what was on her mind as she was going about her day when this angel Gabriel came to give her this news. One thing I, I, I see here is, is, is I was looking at this text. We don't create our own significance. You and I don't create our own significance. Our culture wants to tell us that we do and we want to spend a lot of our time creating our own significance. We all, I, I struggle with that. We all do. Because that's what the culture is asking us to do. That's what the culture is calling us to do. But we don't create our own significance. We don't create our own value. We don't earn our place in God's plan. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is the author of our calling, that God is the author of the plan and of the promise, and he is the one who calls and directs us. All throughout the story, what we see is a reminder that God is calling people who feel like they don't matter, who feel like they're not equipped to do anything worthy of his glory, and yet he calls them all the time, all throughout his story. It's how he's glorified when he calls these insignificant, very weak people. Ones who feel like they have nothing to offer. And know this, brother and sister, that, you can, that God may call you, move in you, transform you in your most lowest, darkest, and even insignificant time in your life. The time when you are feeling the most insignificant. The time when you're feeling the most valueless, worthless, weakest, those are the times that God many times will call you and move you and encourage you. Because it was Paul who said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's Christ who, is, who, who does all things through me, through his strength. It's not our strength that does anything. And this is proof. All throughout these stories, it is God showing us that he is the one who's calling us. He is the one who names us. He is the one who gives us our value and our significance. Mary hears this, and she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, this, this, um, this word virgin here, that's really not what it's saying in the Greek there. What, what she actually says is, how will this be since I have not known a man? 
So it kind of defines it a little more to where, where it's saying she's never been with a man. She, she, you know, they knew how babies came about then, you know? They knew what had to happen. And she's saying, I'm still a virgin. How is this going to happen? And the angel answered her, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now let's overshadow this language here. It's not, it's not relational language. It is more about the filling. It, this language for overshadow, this is like the same thing that happened when the Spirit filled the tabernacle, filled the temple. The Spirit would fill and overshadow the temple and His complete power would be in that place. And he's saying the Holy Spirit, His power will be within you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Then he says in verse 36, hey, listen, I'm already six, month, six months ahead with Elizabeth, your relative. You know, nobody was expecting her to have a child. She's in her 60s. And she's been barren, and now she's pregnant. God has already caused barren Elizabeth to become pregnant. That seemed impossible as well. And now he's saying to Mary, you are barren in your young age because you have not gone through a relationship yet. And although that seems impossible, listen, Mary, all of these things that you've been hearing, all these stories that you've been hearing, all the things that you know about God, Mary, were told to you, were told to us, so that we may know nothing is impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God and nothing ever was impossible with God it is something that he's calling us and reminding us in these stories all throughout his word to remember that nothing is impossible for our God so what's Mary say well Mary has a pretty faithful response doesn't she she says this behold I'm a servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word, she tells the angel. And the angel departed. He said, I'm done. I have nothing else to do. Mary is obeyed. Although Mary had very little significance in her culture's eyes, there were some things that she had. She had the value of her dignity. She had her reputation of righteousness. She was a God-fearing young lady. And she had the opportunity to have a family. But you see, in this troublesome interruption of God, what happened through all of this, by her saying, okay, I'm willing to be the Lord's servant, she's about to put all of that at great risk in order to obey the call of God. 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle says this, all this danger and trial Mary was willing and ready to risk. She asks no further questions. She raises no further objections. She accepts the honor laid upon her with all its perils and inconveniences. Behold, she says, some translations say, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. And then Rao continues that all the disputations with God after his will is known, all disputations with God after his will is known arise from infidelity. 
There is not a more noble proof of faith than bring all the powers of our understanding and will captive to our creator. What Ryle's saying is any pushback that we have when we know the will of God, when we are convinced of the will of God in our lives, when he's made it known to us and we begin to push back, he's saying any argument we offer after knowing God's will comes from faithlessness. Our faith starts out weak. And many times we know what God is calling us to do. We know that he's calling us to put things on the table. We know that he's calling us to give our entire selves to him. And yet we want to find reasons why we shouldn't. It's our humanness, it's our brokenness that wants to fight back. And he's saying that what, what Mary was experiencing here was a mature faith. This young, God-fearing lady who was probably 12 or 13 or 14 years old was experiencing such a mature faith that was trusting and able to rest in God. A mature faith believes God for who he is and for what he can do. That he loves you. That he cares for you. That he carries you and directs you in all your life. A mature faith believes and trusts and rests in the vine, believing that he indeed is the vine, the source of all life, the source of all strength, and that you and I, that we are the branches, the branches that can do absolutely nothing apart from him. A mature faith believes that and is able to rest in that. When we succeed, it's because of him. When we fail, it's because perhaps he's pruning us, because he's growing us, because he is there working in us, working through us, our, our lives, building us up, nourishing us, and cultivating us. Mary understood that her role was to take part in the plan of God, trusting that he has her, that he as the vine, as the source, was giving her everything she needed to be the branch. He called her to risk it all, and he calls us to do the same, or should I say, he calls us to give it all to him. He calls us to do that. As I read this, and, and, and reading through The Hobbit, I came to realize that I started off this sermon series with the first line in that book. And as I saw the very last line, I was pretty pleased to see that this fits just as well. The last few lines of The Hobbit. After the battles are over, Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins are now reminiscing and sitting and relaxing at the end. And Gandalf, the wizard, says this to Bilbo. Bilbo, you don't really suppose, do you? that all of your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit. You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world, after all. Bilbo Baggins laughed, passed the tobacco jar to Gandalf, and said, yeah, thank goodness. Brothers and sisters, may our hearts rejoice at the good news that the snake crusher has come and we could say with joy and laughter, thank you, Father, and Merry, Merry Christmas. Amen.